For our first Sunday in Advent, we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 7, so I want to invite you to, to turn there or find your place. Um, while you're turning there, I'll just welcome back, uh, I think I saw Catherine. Hey, there she is. Welcome back. Good to have you back with us, and um, thanks again for your service. Uh, so we're, we, we love seeing new faces or, or old faces who are returning back, um, and sadly, though, this Sunday we're we're saying goodbye to some faces that we're going to miss. Uh, so Todd and Nancy are moving to Florida. Uh, Nancy got a call uh, to Florida to serve in a hospital down there. So uh, we are going to miss you guys a lot and just thankful for the time that the Lord had you here with us. So uh, give them lots of air hugs, you know, after the service and wish, wish them well. Uh, Todd, we're not going to get rid of him just quite yet. He's got another month hanging out with us, but anyway. Hey, um, so we're about to turn to this passage in Isaiah, and I want to give you a little bit of context so it's not like, what are we, what are we reading? Um, Isaiah the prophet comes to King Ahaz, and Ahaz is the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. By this time, there's the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And King Ahaz is anxious, fearful, concerned because the northern kingdom of Israel has teamed up with Syria to attack Ahaz and to attack uh, Judah, basically to replace Ahaz and get a puppet king in there who will align with Israel and Syria to defend themselves against the northern aggressor of Assyria, okay? So a little geopolitical uh, context there, some tension going on. But that at least lets you know what is it um, that Isaiah is communicating to Ahaz? What kind of comfort is he providing in the offer of a sign, a sign of assurance to Ahaz that he needs to trust in the Lord? Um, don't, don't make any foolish you know, associations or treaties or uh, do anything that isn't going to honor God. So let's stand in honor of the Lord, and we're going to read verses 10 to 14 in Isaiah chapter 7. All right, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol, or the grave, or as high as heaven, but Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word to your people, uh, is spoken to our fathers and mothers in the faith for generations and speaks now to us, um, a word of comfort, a word of promise, that you are Emmanuel, you are God with us. Please help us to understand and appreciate that and live that out uh, more consistently, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> So I'm going to look at some of the surrounding verses as well, but, but just to kind of give you an orientation, we're going to talk about the king, King Ahaz. 
Uh, and then the, the virgin, this sign that is given to Ahaz, um, you know, the, 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 there's this virgin birth, uh, the sign that accompanies that which will assure Ahaz that God is, is with him. God is uh, Emmanuel. Uh, so let's, let's talk about this offer that God makes to this king, right? Um, I'll give you a sign as high as the heaven or as, as deep as Sheol. You've got Isaiah the prophet. And he's sort of the king's advisor. Isaiah the prophet comes to the king, King Ahaz, and you know, basically tells Ahaz, ask for a sign. You can, you can make it as high as you want, as deep as you want. Um, it's a blank check. And God wants to encourage you and assure you he's with you. You don't need to fear uh, Israel and Syria uh, attacking you. You don't need to fear Assyria attacking you. You need to trust in the Lord, right? But Isaiah declines. Do you see that? Right there in verse 12, uh, Ahaz says, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. So um, what's Ahaz doing? And why is he declining this incredibly gracious offer through Isaiah from God? Uh, you know, what what, I, what Ahaz is doing is he's quoting Deuteronomy, and, and it sort of sounds pious, like, oh, no, 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 um, I don't want to put the Lord to the test, right? I don't want to uh, burden God or whatever. Like, like, when you talk to folks sometimes, and I've had this conversation, maybe you've had it, where, where people will say, um, well, I don't want to pray for all of the, the peculiar, detailed things going on in my life. Uh, I'll, I'll pray for the big things. God's got more important things to do than worry about, you know, my little life. I'm like, well, he's infinite, and he says he loves us, so you might want to just include some of those little things too. You're not putting God out, in other words. We can't put any, an infinite being out. Um, but that's what Isaiah is, he's playing that card. Like, oh, no, 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 no. Um, God's got more important things to do. I'm not going to put him to the test. Uh, so maybe he's being pious, maybe he's being polite. Hard to say, but all we know is that, you know, what is happening here is a strange parallel to what happens centuries later uh, between, uh, in this case, not a prophet, but, the, but Satan, who goes to another king, King Jesus, and says, ask for a sign. And Jesus declines and says, no, no, no. He quotes the very same verse from Deuteronomy. No, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. What's the difference? What's the difference between these two episodes? Well, in one case, you've got you know, Satan saying, all right, Jesus, if you're the Son of God, prove it. You know? uh, and it's this self-serving kind of test. And it's the accuser you know, basically putting Jesus to the test. But in Isaiah's case, it's a different situation. It's not Satan saying, you know, you need to test God. It's God saying, test me. When God invites the test, it's fine. You know, we don't need to go out um, and uh, uh, gratuitously test God and be, you know, um, uh, irresponsible and, you know, do stuff that's stupid and dangerous, like throwing ourselves from the pinnacle of the temple, which was Satan's you know, proposition to Jesus. But when God says, test me, we can do it. 
In fact, that's, that's exactly the point here. Make, make your request as high as heaven or as deep as Sheol or the grave. Basically, nothing is too, too big in, in terms of the ask. And so if this were you, right? If Isaiah the prophet were coming to you and, and you were fearful, you, you were afraid of you know, um, something that's going to disturb your, your safety, your security, your peace, and God through a prophet were to say to you, look, you can ask me for a sign and you can make it as high or as deep as you want. Um, it's a blank check. Shoot the moon. What would you ask for? I mean... What would it take to convince you that the Lord is with you? That the, the Lord is going to care for you and love you? What's it going to take uh, in order to be convinced of that? Well, why does Ahaz say no to this? Why, why does he decline this offer? It's, it's kind of interesting, and I want to talk about Ahaz's solution here. First of all, just to, to point out the, the fact that, that Ahaz is real. Um, I, we, we tend to, it's like this anesthesia um, washes over us and we think of the Old Testament and all the kings and the prophets and we sort of look at those as just sort of spiritual figures. We almost mythologize them. But in the Friday email, we send this out every Friday with worship resources and I tend to try to, because I'm a visual person, I'll throw an image in there, a painting, an artwork, or whatever. But in this case, this is an archaeological artifact called a bula. Uh, and this is, you know, from the 7th century BC. And a bula is like, uh, like the wax seal on those medieval envelopes. A bula was a, a clay seal on an official document. And this one has a stamp that in the stamp is Ahaz's name, king of Judah, uh, there's also a fingerprint that has been sort of like hard and petrified in this, this hard clay. Uh, it's a fingerprint, and most people think that's Ahaz's fingerprint. This isn't mythological. It's not, you know, strictly spiritual. It's, this, is, this is historical. This is factual. This is about a real king in real jeopardy looking for a real solution. And his solution is to basically take matters into his own hands. Uh, you can, if you've still got Isaiah 7 open, here's sort of the big picture. Uh, Syria and Israel came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. Um, it came up means uh, the elevation. Uh, you go up to Jerusalem, but look, when you're looking at the map, Jerusalem's south. They're, they're coming south from, from the northern kingdoms uh, to wage war in Jerusalem. And when the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, meaning Israel, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. How's that for imagery, like for a metaphor? They are so scared. They're like the tops of the trees in the wind. They're just shaking, tossed and, and, and um, about because of their fear. Um, so what is Ahaz going to do? Well, Isaiah comes in verse 3, uh, and in verse 4, the Lord says to Ahaz through Isaiah, 
be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. You know, don't let your heart be tossed about like the trees in the wind. Don't let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. You know, this sort of insult, uh, a God-inspired insult of the king of Israel and the king of Syria, uh, who want to imagine themselves to be like these bonfires that are consuming everything in their path, but instead they're smoldering little, you know, almost extinguished ends of sticks. Nothing really to fear. Um, verse 6, you know, the, uh, the, the voice of, of the king of Israel and the king of Syria is, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it. Literally, the word is split it open for ourselves and, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of Judah. So they want to put a puppet king in Judah to make Judah form this alliance between Judah, Syria, and Israel. And then they would be safe against Assyria. That's the goal. So Isaiah says, look, this isn't going to happen. Um, in verse 7, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. Bottom of verse 9, if you are not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. So here's this choice given to Ahaz. Trust in the Lord and his protection and his provision over you. Ask for a sign. Make it as high as you want or as deep as you want. He is going to care for you. Or take matters into your own hands. Well, we see what Ahaz does in 2 Kings. Uh, I'll just read this to you. You don't have to turn there. But in 2 Kings 16, the king of Syria and the king of Israel came up to wage war on Jerusalem. And they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer him. And Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but that's the king of Assyria. Ahaz sends messengers to the king of Assyria saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Like, those are the words that he's supposed to say to God. <laughs> and instead, he's communicating this to the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser. Now, this is sort of normal, though. This is what kings do. They form alliances, they get political, and they do what is conventional. They do what seems practical and pragmatic. Trusting in the Lord is not practical or pragmatic in Ahaz's eyes. He takes matter into his own hands. He sends all of the gold and all of the silver that are in the treasuries of the temple off to Tiglath-Pileser as a tribute. And when they found Tiglath-Pileser's tomb in like 1847, I think was the date, they found the annals of the king. And in these archaeological relics, they find an account of the king of Judah, King Ahaz, sending a tribute of gold and silver to Tiglath-Pileser. Again, this, this is, don't mythologize this. Don't super-spiritualize this. This is historical. It's factual. The, the political things were, were historical and factual, and so were the religious things. So is the offer of God from Isaiah to Ahaz, trust in the Lord. 
asks for a sign. Ahaz declines the sign. Why look to God when the answer is obvious? I, I, need, I need to figure out an alliance. I need to, I need to you know, make, a, make a treaty with the king of Assyria. It's obvious. Why look to God? Why, why spiritualize this when you know, the world gives us all these options of how to solve our problems? Well, that's the king. Let's talk about the virgin real quick. Because the sign, of course, in verse 14 is that, uh, behold, a virgin, well, the, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Uh, most of you are familiar with this verse. It's a popular verse around Advent. Some of you are familiar with this verse because you know that this is a verse that's uh, discussed in a lot of theological circles, uh, and that the progressive sort of liberal theological camp uh, wants to say that this verse is not saying what we think it's saying. You know, they're going to use all this linguistic argument to tell us that the word that we translate virgin should mean young woman. And so there are whole Bible translations today, if you're not familiar with this, the, the, to, the new Revised Standard Version reads like this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. Good news translation. A young woman who is pregnant will have a son and will name him Emmanuel. The new English translation. Uh, the, this young woman is about to conceive and will give birth to a son, etc. So there, there are these different theological camps. And so some are saying, hey, linguistically, this word doesn't mean what you think it means. And the other scholars are saying, yes, it does. Um, we can trust the integrity of the translation that we have, uh, not only because it is uh, the same word that is used to describe Rebecca all the way back in, uh, in Genesis chapter 24, who is a virtuous, unmarried you know, virgin uh, who is going to be uh, the wife that is promised. Uh, not only that, but you go to, in the fourth century, when they translated the Hebrew scriptures, what we have as the Old Testament, um, a lot of people weren't able to speak Hebrew. And, and in the uh, Greco empire, uh, Greek being the dominant language, they translated the Old Testament into Greek. It's called the Septuagint, 4th century BC. A lot of centuries before the 19th, in the 20th and the 21st century when sort of liberal scholarship wanted to say, oh, no, no, we're more sophisticated than this. We don't have to believe in virgin births anymore. We can get over some of the ancient embellishments of Scripture. In the 4th century B.C., they read what, was, what Isaiah was saying to Ahaz and said, that's the word for virgin. And in the Greek translation called the Septuagint, they used the Greek word for a virgin, Parthenon. Parthenos. It's the same word that we use for the, that big temple in Athens called the Parthenon, dedicated to the virgin goddess. Like, people aren't stupid. In the 4th century BC, they used the word that meant virgin. But beyond all of that sort of like critical scholarship, the most important thing that we have that tells us what this sign really is about, about a virgin conceiving and giving birth to a son, is what Matthew and Luke understood uh, the sign to mean when they were writing their Gospels. 
Because they understand that what was promised to Ahaz ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus. So in Matthew chapter 1, we read that the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. So when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. They were engaged but not married, and she was pregnant. And this pregnancy is through the Holy Spirit. Um, Joseph, obviously, a little alarmed. The, the angel of the Lord has to assure Joseph, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, and here's Isaiah 7 being quoted by Matthew, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And Matthew translates it, which means God with us. So the whole point of Matthew's nativity and Luke's nativity is that Joseph intended to break off the engagement because he didn't have another category for a woman becoming pregnant apart from sexual intercourse. And, and, and I, can you imagine the, the painful uh, encounter between Mary and Joseph as this woman who has, he trusts, uh, he, who has all this virtue and respectability, who is insisting to him that she did not sleep with another man, that the pregnancy is something supernatural. And can you you imagine how that would tear his heart in two to to hear this woman insisting on a circumstance that he doesn't have any any context for until the angel of the Lord comes and says, this is in fulfillment of the prophecy. This is a virgin birth. This is something supernatural. This is important. There's a reason why the virgin birth is important. Because if it's indispensable if Jesus is going to be born without our sinful nature. So on the one hand, he's born of Mary, he's born of a woman, he's got a human birth because he's fully human. On the other hand, he's conceived by the Holy Spirit, meaning he's fully God. He doesn't have our sin nature. And because he's fully human and fully God, he is uniquely qualified to be our righteous human representative and our sin-bearing substitute who would conquer sin and defeat death and rise again from the dead uh, through the power of the resurrection. So the point is that we need to beware of those who would question miracles like this in the Bible. Like some are just wolves in sheep's clothing they're teaching in the seminary. Some, there are good seminaries, but there are bad seminaries. And, and some just want to you know, cut the legs out from under any kind of theological uh, assurance that we have of the Bible. Others think that they're doing us a favor. They're like, um, like the cruise ship company that says, you know what, uh, the, the, um, all, the, all the life preservers and all of the uh, emergency life rafts those, uh, you know, we could make so much more use of our deck space if we got rid of those. And frankly, they just intimidate 
our, our, our clients. And so we want them to have a good experience. And we don't want them to worry about things like a you know, shipwreck. Come on. Get rid of those, right? Like sort of good intentions. They want to give everybody a, a good time. But what happens when there really is danger? Like we need a savior who is fully God and fully man because only then can he truly rescue us from the weight of sin that drags us under. We need one who would take on as a human being, be the, a, a, the substitute that is qualified to stand in our place, but because he was sinless, he then could give us his righteousness. So, you know, the crazy thing, though, is that as much as this ends up getting debated in some scholastic circles, for most people, it doesn't even matter. Like, um, we were talking about this devotional book for Advent, uh, The Christmas We Didn't Expect, and David Mathis quotes this 2003 study where people are being polled and uh, they're going, hey, do you still believe in the virgin birth? And 79%, almost, almost four out of five Americans said that they believe in the virgin birth. Like it's not a big deal. And, and even more surprisingly, among non-Christians, people who, yeah, I don't, I don't follow Jesus, I don't believe in Jesus. Well, do you believe in the virgin birth? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe in the virgin birth. Do you believe in Jesus? No, I don't believe in Jesus. Like, what? So the 27% of non-Christians agree that Jesus was born of a virgin. So there's kind of this disconnect. Like, why does it seem that people aren't impressed with this miracle that they say they believe in? Why aren't more lives changed by the sign of the virgin birth? Maybe because the sign isn't just the virgin birth. The sign isn't just the virgin birth. The sign is the sun. The sign is the sun himself, right? So the sign is heaven coming down to us. Like last week, we were concluding the series in Mark about how Jesus uh, goes up to heaven. He returns to heaven. Uh, and, and any sane person would say, I want to go there too. I want to follow Jesus up into heaven. Um, maybe they call it a better place or the good place. They don't have to necessarily be, um, you know, believing in the Bible or disciples of Jesus. But just about everybody you talk to says, you know, when I die, I hope I go to a better place. We want to leave this sin-sick world and go to a place beauty and blessing. Now, it's not wrong to think in terms of like going up to heaven. That's just our default directional, you know, grid. Going up to heaven when we die. Um, but I want to offer a correction and a clarification. And the correction is this, that, that eternal life or, or heaven, as the Bible describes it, yeah, it has connotations sort of, of like geographical, like it's a place but it's more than a place. Primarily, eternal life is a person. It's not a place. It's a person. It's not a, a destination. It's a relationship. And you hear this again and again and again in the Bible. Uh, for instance, um, John uh, describes eternal life this way. This is eternal life. 
that they may know you, the only true God, and, and your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. So eternal life is a relationship with Jesus. It's a relationship with God through Jesus. Um, and then Paul would tell the Philippians, look, here's what I want. Uh, despite all of my religious accomplishments, all of the things that I achieved as a Pharisee and all of the zeal that I had for God, I consider all of that to be, you know, worth the garbage disposal. Compared to the surpassing greatness of going to heaven when I die. That's not what he said. He said, I consider everything else in my life to be trash, rubbish, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. A couple of verses later, he sums it all up. I want to know Christ. That's eternal life. That's heaven. That's paradise. In being in a relationship with you. So let me, I'm just offering that correction. Here's a clarification. If we do think, and, and it's okay to think of heaven geographically, and, and I know our default is to think that it's up there somewhere, but again and again, the Bible keeps describing heaven as a place that comes down to us. We don't go up to it so much as it comes down to us. And we see this again and again in Scripture. John's Revelation, chapter 21. I saw the new Jerusalem, the holy city, coming down out of heaven as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And Paul tells the Thessalonians that uh, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of the archangel, the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. You've heard of the rapture, right? We go up, meet the Lord in the air, and then we come down with him as his entourage. Because grace flows downhill. Mercy condescends, descends with us. That's what that word means. It's what we sang about earlier in the service. Christ our God to earth descends. So just a correction and a clarification as we think about how when you put these two things together, the Son of Heaven came down in order to be with us. And in Jesus, we get the fulfillment of Isaiah's invitation to Ahaz. Ask for a sign. It can be as high as heaven or as deep as the grave. Jesus, the Son of Heaven, comes from the highest heaven down to earth, lives with us, and then is buried in a tomb, in a grave. More than that, he descended into hell, separated from God, cut off from fellowship with his Father for us, to rescue us, to deliver us. He is the sign that spans an infinite breach, right? The highest heaven and the deepest grave. You don't have to choose one or the other because he's he extends to both ends. And he is that sign of the, the proof that Jesus, that God is with us. He is the proof that we need that God is with us, that he loves us, that he's going to take care of us. Jesus is that sign. And so in that sense, the sign isn't just a sign. It's, you know, it's, the sign is the thing symbolized. In this case, 
uh, you know, the sign isn't pointing to something far off or foreshadowing something coming down the road, you know, like, hey, in a little bit, you're going to get to your destination. Jesus is the sign and the substance combined into one. God doesn't hold out on us. Like, we, we, we couldn't have asked for a bigger, better sign or indication that God is with us. There's, earlier when I asked you, what would you ask for? We can't outgive what, what God has given. We can't even imagine to ask for what he and his generosity has given us. That he who would not spare his own son, right, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not along with him give us all things? He can't give us any more than Jesus. We can't ask for any more than Jesus. So Ahaz, on the one hand, he's you know, like quoting Deuteronomy, pretending to be pious or being polite. Oh, I don't want to bother God because he's already got his solution figured out. I'm going to make a treaty with Assyria. He doesn't need God. Why do you need God when you've already got your solution worked out? In his fear, Ahaz thought he knew what was best. When his heart is, is shaking like, like the tops of the trees because he's worried about his comfort, his security, his future, he takes matters into his own hands. And we're a lot like Isaiah, like, like Ahaz. In that, every single one of us is afraid. There's nobody in this room or at home who's not afraid. Fear is human. What are you afraid of? Are you afraid of COVID, right? I'm afraid of getting sick. Or, or maybe you're afraid of getting somebody else sick. Or maybe that's not what you're afraid of. But what makes your heart shake like the tops of the trees in the gale is our country. What's going on politically? What's going on culturally? What's going on economically? Like you're scared to death. What's going to happen to your savings? What's going to happen to your job? Or, all right, switching gears. Maybe you're afraid for your kids. Some of the choices that they're making. What's their future going to hold? Maybe you're afraid for your marriage. Is your marriage going to make it? Are you going to endure? Or you're single and you're afraid you're never going to get married. You're afraid of being alone. Some of you are afraid of getting old. Some of you are afraid of dying. Like There are things in every person's life that makes our heart shake like the tops of the trees. And what will we do with our fear. We can choose Ahaz's solution, which is take matters in our own hands. You know, uh, I can't find a spouse uh, who loves Jesus, so I'm going to go date this guy or this girl who doesn't have a clue about the Bible and doesn't care about Jesus at all because I'm so afraid of being alone. Or uh, I'm afraid of, I'm not going to have any money, so I'm going to kind of get a little creative and do some things that are questionable and uh, maybe illegal and, and so on. Or, you know, uh, I'm just going to you know, live for number one. I'm going to do my own thing. Uh, anyway, you fill in the blank. We can take matters into our own hands. 
Or we can just continue to be at the mercy of our fear and just have our hearts flagging and flapping in the wind and just have no peace and no security. Or we can know that God has given us a sign. He's given us Jesus. And no, I don't claim that I will ever have perfect peace this side of heaven, but the gospel is nonetheless an invitation to go deeper with Jesus, to get closer to Jesus, to know that God is with me in Jesus. Not just theoretically, not just theologically, not just hypothetically, but really with me in Jesus. We can look at these archaeological things that show us that Ahaz was real and Isaiah was real and Tiglath-Pileser was real. Jesus is real. And he's with us. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And John 1 tells us that the word became flesh and and made his dwelling among us. And, and, and in Jesus, we see his grace and his truth. We see his glory on display. The one who tabernacled and pitched his tent among us to be with us. You know, the sign is something that points to what it represents. And in Jesus, we have the sign and the substance. Jesus isn't the, the foreshadowing of something to come. He's not pointing to something else that lies up ahead. He's the promise and the fulfillment wrapped up in the one. And you know, this is going to disappoint those who, who, who think of heaven as like this destination, as like this uh, sort of eternal spiritual amusement park. Um, but it's actually good news because I can, tr- I can promise you right now that uh, among the many, many people who are wandering Disneyland or Disney World or whatever theme parks are open today, uh, there are some who are absolutely miserable. They're, they're in the happiest place on earth, and they're miserable. Why? Oh, who knows? You know, they, their knee hurts, or their kids are, you know, hungry and crying and cranky, or their lines are too long. Like, all right, look, even in the happiest places on earth, people can still be miserable. You know who the happiest people on earth are? The people who have found love, who understand that our joy is in a relationship. That's why it was so painful for many of us Thursday to, to not be with everybody that we love. But when you are with everybody that you love, people who love you, when you've found love, you've found joy. You're happy. You're peaceful. And in Jesus, the sign that God is with us, love found us. Love found us. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for Jesus. We do this every week, but we just need to grow in our understanding of of how amazing this grace is. That you've come to be with us, not to leave us to our own devices, not to let our hearts shake in the wind like treetops, but to give us real assurance, real hope, um, and Lord, to transform us to men and women and Young men, young women, boys and girls who know that we're loved and have security and peace because of that. Lord, if there are any here who don't know that you love them and who don't have the assurance that you gave yourself for them, 
Open, open their eyes so that they can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus, I pray. And open all of our eyes even wider God, so that we can see it more clearly, so that we can know with greater and greater assurance that you are God with us. In your name we pray, amen.